This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now from Monday, G7 nations, US and in Europe, put a cap on the price of Russian oil. $60 was the cap. It's an attempt to squeeze Russia and deprive them of some income, another economic sanction really. Also, there were restrictions on the insurance that Russian tankers could get, which led to a big queue of over 100 tankers close to Turkey. It's problematic, I think, how effective this will be. But it's a pleasure now to welcome Konstantin Gurdjieff to the program. Konstantin is an economist and a Russian and adjunct professor of finance with Trinity Business School. Konstantin, thank you so much for joining us from Colorado I want to ask you about, first of all, your impression of this price cap and how workable it will be. Well, thanks, Eamon. As you said, the price cap is set to enter into force. Um, and, uh, you know, it also coincides with a ban on the imports of Russian crude oil, which is outside of the cap, uh, which entered into force on December 5th. The ban itself applies to seaborne imports of crude and does not cover uh, pipeline uh, shipments. And that's worth actually highlighting there uh, because not all of the oil from Russia is covered by the price cap, uh, whether it is um, or, or by the ban for that matter. Uh, there is also a ban on Russian oil products, which is coming into force on 5th of February 2023. Yes. So that is going to be also pretty material. In basic terms, what it is is that crude oil is currently imported into the EU from Russia also via pipelines. Druzhba pipeline in particular, it still is operative. The largest buyers of pipeline oil being imported into the EU are Germany and Poland. And materially, they have announced that they will suspend their pipeline purchases uh, of Russian oil from next month as well. So, um, therefore Russia will need to basically replace if those, all of these bonds and all of these, um, 
price caps uh, come into effect, Russia will need to find new customers for about 25% or one quarter of its crude oil exports, which is pretty sizable. It's 1.5 million barrels per day, roughly speaking. And the volume is roughly the same as the combined increase in Russian oil exports to China, India, and Turkey that came into force since the start of the war in Ukraine. Yes. So it is very significant impact in terms of the volumes. The question is how, how this ban together with this cap are going to actually uh, materially impact the exports of oil from Russia. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, questions about that. Um, first of all, there are questions about whether Russia will be able to find substitutes for shipping channels. Uh, because as you mentioned, the, um, cap itself comes into force under the EU, EU and the UK and G7, uh, com, uh, companies, uh, that dominate the market, uh, now being restricted in terms of providing shipping financing and insurance services, uh, for, uh, for shipments of oil from Russia. And they can only provide those if oil was purchased at the price within the cap itself. Um, Russia will have already said that it's not going to abide by the cap. So Russia is hoping to find replacement for both insurance um, coverage and financing coverage, probably a little bit easier, but really insurance and shipping. Now, the EU is a dominant uh, effectively provider of shipping services for Russian oil currently. And uh, UK and the EU are the dominant providers of insurance services. So as a result of that, this part of the price cap is probably the most painful for Russia. It is estimated that Russia will have to raise somewhere new shipping capacity for its oil in order to replace or bypass this ban, which would amount to effectively entire shipping capacity of India itself. Right. China already indicated, as far as we know from some reports, China already indicated to Russia that they will not accept Russian insurance. What that means is unclear because, of course, Russians can insure it through China, uh, their shipments to China as well. So there is an, uh, a whole bunch of the uncertainty and issues that we do not know, and no analyst currently can predict how effective this ban will be. There is also an issue of the price. The, and it's material as well, because the price cap has been set at $60 bar, uh, dollars per barrel. This is for Ural's grade of oil or Ural's blend of oil, which is Russia exporting, not to be confused with the West Texas Intermediate, which is the American uh, benchmark, or with the Brent, which is European. Yes. So the Ural's, uh, Ural's grade oil has been trading at around $70, $75 a barrel in November. And since announcement of the cap, the market price has dipped towards $65 a barrel. So in a way, it might actually make the whole idea of complying or not complying with the cap by the Russians to be immaterial if the market price starts reflecting the actual price that the cap is uh, set at. So there's a lot of open things here and a lot of moving parts to this whole uh, idea of capping the prices, uh, restricting supplies, uh, diverting supplies and so forth. Yes, and I remember a conversation we had February 24th was the beginning of this conflict when Russia invaded Ukraine. Not too long afterwards, we had a conversation about sanctions that were imposed on Russia and on individual Russians, so-called 
oligarchs and so on. And I think you speculated that they wouldn't hurt in the short term, but that come maybe June, July, they would begin to bite a bit. It seems to me that Russia's economy has remained pretty resilient. Has it surprised you how resilient the Russian economy has been, or am I mistaken in believing it has been resilient? There is a lot going on here. Um, yes, uh, a lot of us analysts and economists have been really surprised uh, by the fact that the Russian economy did not tank by double digits so far. That said, um, starting with July, uh, we started seeing significant um, contraction in the Russian economy. So, for example, the second quarter of this year, Russian economy shrunk by 4.1% in real terms right. year on year. And then we saw additional 4% um, uh, you know, fall off in July-September period, so in the third quarter. That's as far as the data that we have. We're also seeing significant pressures on Russian budget. So the government, Kremlin, decided to use as much resources as possible to sustain economic activity in Russia at certain levels. So um, it is running now out of this funding. 4% um, 4% in, in two quarters is a, it's quite a bit, isn't it? It's quite a bit, especially when you think about it, the Russian economy expanded by 5% in the previous year. Right. So you are looking at a pretty steep drop-off in terms of the economic activity. This drop-off is distributed unevenly across economy. So, for example, wholesale trade... Um, in the third quarter fell 23% year on year by a quarter. Retail sales shrunk by 9%. This is differences in terms of the price changes, for example, between the retail and wholesale prices, but also substitution away, for example, from imports and so forth. Manufacturing output was down just 2%. So very interesting combination. One of the interesting things is that both in Ukraine and in Russia, there has been pretty substantial um, you know, if you want well-performing agricultural uh, crops output, okay, or the yes. harvest this year. Uh, it was a surprise to analysts both in Ukraine and in Russia, but in particular in Russia, agri- agricultural output is now 6% up on last year, which was pretty close to record year to begin with. Right. So it's very dramatic in this sense. But one interesting thing is that you look at, for example, construction activity, which would be directly impacted by the contraction in terms of the imports, but also by the contraction in domestic investment. And yet it shrunk, um, it, it actually did not sh- shrink at all. It rose 7% year on year in the third quarter this year. And the reason for it, as you say, there are things that are not exactly immediately transparent. The reason for it is that Russian government extended significant subsidies for lending in the construction sector during this period. So again, you're looking at the economy, which is on the surface, at the very top, performing poorly, but not dramatically, you know, in terms of not a dramatic tailspin as we would have expected it to be. And yet economic impact of the invasion and economic impact of the sanctions is now already starting to get reflected directly in main economic indicators, especially things like uh, domestic demand. Um, so if you look at the going forward in terms of forecasts and you compare the forecast for the Russian economy back and say, second quarter of uh, this year relative to what has been produced so far in October, November this year, there is a somewhat 
significant uptick in terms of the expectations in the contraction going forward in 2023. Um, but, you know, that uptick is again not very dramatic. So consensus, uh, for example, consensus economics, uh, who pulled together 19 institutional forecasters, um, their results, uh, for the Russian economy, they are saying that, uh, this year, the most of the institutional investors are expecting 4.2% contraction and 3% next year, followed by some other analysts, like say, for example, Central Bank, Finland Central Bank, which does fantastic analysis of the Russian economy, uh, they predict 4% contraction in the next year. So there is an effect, that effect not as huge as we expected it to be. It is in the areas that we did expect it to start happening. So private consumption down 9% this year. For the year so far, uh, it looks like gross capital formation will be about 15% down. So investment is really tanking. Experts are slightly down by about 5%. Not dramatic, but more of that, double of that is expected in 2023. And imports are down by 25%. Very dramatic decline in terms of imports. And that's kind of full year type of expected results that we're looking at right now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir, and I'm Kate Spencer, and we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today. We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, when we assess the economics of this war, we have to factor in 
don't we? The support they're getting from China, from India, the Saudis. We, we tend to make the mistake, or at least I do, and I think a lot of commentators in Europe, of thinking in terms of a bipolar world, the West versus Russia. But it's not like that, is it? There's a huge chunk of the world now that is watching this and is quite happy China and India are, relatively speaking, uh, they're happy to deal with Russia, to trade with Russia, and to give them what they need. China, India, Turkey, I mentioned earlier yes. in the context of the oil cap. And, tur and Turkey is a member of NATO. Correct, absolutely. Um, and Turkey used to be a very close U.S. ally, uh, not anymore. Uh, what's interesting about this is that uh, this kind of line of, uh, if you want, division between the West and the rest uh, has been now also, and if not fully healing, of course, but at least impacting in quite unexpected ways. Uh, rifts between India and Pakistan. Yes. Um, Russia, uh, Russia is in a strong positive relations, both in trade and investment, but also in terms of the geopolitics with both of those countries. Funny enough, China is also starting to become more, if you want, constructively engaged with both countries, even though it has military confrontation on the borders with India in parts. Nonetheless, there has been a process by which the two countries have been coordinating um, their both economic developments globally and geopolitical interests as well globally. So the West versus the rest is the material division that we're witnessing today. Yes. It plays handily into the hands of the likes of Xi Jinping, who has been uh, consistently over the years of the view that the West is generally in a state of decline yes. and that decline is accelerating rather than deaccelerating. So, uh, you know, all of that is, you know, if you look at, for example, the issues of the price cap, you mentioned three players. Let's add Turkey to that. Amongst those four players together, China and India and Turkey have already said that they're not going to abide by the cap. They're not going to stick to the cap. Okay. Um, they're going to continue buying it. By the way, the cap doesn't apply and the bans from the EU do not apply for re-exportation of Russian products, oil products or oil from the third countries into the EU. Yes. That means that Turkey can be a major re-exporter uh, re or buying Russian crude, for example, or refined products and then selling them, reselling them into Europe, bypassing the cap. So that's kind of an interesting dimension. You mentioned yes. Saudis, the fourth country. Hugely pivotally important. Xi Jinping is currently in Saudi Arabia talking to the leaders of the region and also to the Saudi leaders. Saudis have been very openly alarmed by the idea that G7 can impose and wrestle, arm wrestle, yes. um, its own price controls on third party exporters of oil. And they have refused, haven't they, Joe Biden's request and the Americans' request to increase the oil flow. The Saudis have refused. Exactly. And Saudi's refusal and with them OPEC plus refusal to play ball with Biden administration is the only reason why we're seeing the uh, price cap on uh, Russian oil sitting at about $60 a barrel. You know right. why? Because uh, hypocritically, the West versus the rest means that the West is still interested in having cheap oil and or cheaper energy access to the global, uh, to the global markets. So they cannot actually, um, force complete shutdown of Russian, um, energy trade 
in global markets, and even less so they can afford it because the Saudis and OPEC Plus are not playing the ball. Now, let's look at the OPEC Plus. OPEC Plus itself is composed of Qataris, Saudis, UAE, and the rest of the smaller producers and smaller players. Those three players used to be the staunch U.S. allies. Yes. Strategically, very important allies who have been aligned with the United States even during the period of their um, very active juxtaposition to Israel, for example, in the region. And yet they have drifted completely away now from the U.S. orbit and they're publicly, effectively, um, put into the United States leadership that they are not willing to play the ball. So that weaponization of oil that the United States has unleashed together with the, with the rest of the West, really, uh, is not only not supported by the countries outside of the West, by most of the world, but actually is opposed by most of the world. Let me ask you a hypothetical question, Constantine, and it's this. There are many in the United States, particularly Republicans, but not exclusively, which is where you are now, who are actually, shall we say, have reservations about the extent to which Ukraine should be supported. And indeed, they have reservations about being part of NATO, uh, Donald Trump famously, but others, conservatives. We're living in a bit of a fantasy world, are we not? If we always assume, those of us in Europe, that the United States will always be there for us. And if they weren't there for us, We'd be looking at a very different world, wouldn't we? Yes, you are. Uh, absolutely. I agree with you. And what's interesting in the United States is that you even had difficulty pinning down this kind of, if you want, trend towards isolationism that we are witnessing in the United yes. States to a specific party. And the reason for it is because it is not a division between the two parties. Rather, it is a division between the center left and center right, which, yes. is, which both are dominated by the neoliberal, if you want, geopolitical uh, worldview and the more populist uh, flanks of both parties, um, where this neoliberal point of view, geopolitical point of view, is not so much disputed on the basis of it being, you know, neoliberal, in other words, U.S. commitments to those, um, you know, countries and blocks like NATO, but rather by the view that the United States just doesn't have resources to commit yes. currently. And if you actually look and scratch under the surface and you look at the U.S. economy and its structure. It's an economy which is literally rusting to bits. Yes. It's fallen apart. Yes. Our roads are falling apart. Our, you know, our dams are falling apart. Our water reservoirs and water storage capacity, especially in the West here, you know, I live few miles down, you know, literally actually north, so up, you know, um, the road from the Colorado River. Yes. And you look at the dire state of Western drought, decades long drought now, yes. which is raining the capacity of our reservoirs, reduces our capacity in terms of generating electricity. Um, so this economy has been left without structural investment in physical capital. Yes. The same exactly happens now in the human capital. You look at what's happening with the railroads in the United States and the debate we currently have uh, upon which we discovered that the highly unionized workforce of most of the major railroads in the United States doesn't have paid sick leave. Yes. This is 2022. We're in the 21st century and we have traditionally unionized industrial workforce 
of large employers, which has no access to the most basics of the employment, if you want, benefits that you would expect to have in a modern civilized society. So as a result of that, when you look at the grand commitments of tens of billions of dollars, um, whether it is to Ukraine, and it is unfortunate that it is in this context to Ukraine, uh, or it is, for example, to NATO and so forth, yes, most of the U.S. electorate puts those things as a priority number 778. Yes, hence this move towards isolationism. For example, if Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who uh, won that marginal state, what used to be a marginal state, by 20 points in the recent midterm elections, he's the governor now, he's expected, or there is speculation, that he will be Trump's opponent for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential race. You can imagine a hard-headed guy like him asking how much blood and treasure are we going to waste and spill for Europe? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if the electorate, both the swing part of the electorate and a hard, if you want, right-wing support that DeSantis can count on, both of those actually parts of the electorate that he will need to carry in order to win the White House in 2024, if that, if both of those parts of the electorate are saying back at him the same thing, we want domestic if yes. you want renewal, we want domestic yes. investment, we want the society to be uh, based on the United States first, you know, then you're going to have a problem. And, you know, what's interesting about that is I haven't seen the Irish leadership to do that yet. But this week, Sanna Marin of uh, Finland, the Prime Minister of Finland, very, very poignantly pointed that out. Yes. That the United, that the United States are not only the guarantor, but also the provider. Yes. Just two different things, of course, uh, of security to the entire Europe. And absent that, European security is effectively doesn't exist. Well, hell, we knew about that for ages. We kind of ignore it because we assume that this march of globalization will continue on. And we are now sitting on the back foot and we don't know what to do in the energy sphere. We don't know what to do in terms of the uh, things like, say, basic commodities sphere. Um, we don't know what to do in terms of the security as well on the whole continent. So Europe has to do some serious thinking about this. Yes, we're sleepwalking in my view, because as you point out, we don't have the debate here and we completely misunderstand if we believe that the United States is automatically on our team. Let me ask you, though, an, another question about Russia's economy. Now, we believe that there were 300,000 conscripts for the Russian army. We believe that around 300,000 fled the country, fled Russia, when they felt they might be called and sent to Ukraine. That's about 8.3% of the workforce um, that's a rough calculation. So you may know better and tell me if you do, Constantine. What effect, if any, would that have on the Russian economy? Well, you're right. I mean, that's large numbers. Yes. Uh, of course, the draft itself is uh, important, but also, as you said, there is an unknown number of Russians uh, that has outflown um, from Russia. I mean, interestingly enough, a lot of them kind of tend to come back after the initial uh, leaving of the country. Yeah. So uh, we've seen some numbers coming out of the, uh, for example, Kazakhstan, um, where, you know, roughly speaking, a third of the people who actually originally, you know, 
entered Kazakhstan came back into Russia within about a month or so. Um, one way or another, what's very material here is the selection bias of people who are being drafted and people who are leaving. Yes. Uh, first of all, these are younger workers. Okay. Um, these are younger workers, meaning that they have stronger aptitude to work. They have more human capital that they bring to the workforce. They're also losing through this process, um, very vital months and years of building their early careers. Yes. Uh, the other thing is that, of course, on, in terms of emigration, uh, let's put it this way. Most of the ordinary Russians from the lower income families can't afford fleeing Russia. Because it is excruciatingly expensive. So, for example, I know someone who has left Russia um, with uh, her children um, and uh, moved to Ireland, where she's been before. Uh, kids are Irish um, as well. And uh, it is excruciatingly expensive for her to settle in, in the country in which she is not just a newcomer. She's been there before. She has friends. She has um, relatives and so forth. Excruciatingly yes. expensive and excru excruciatingly difficult. So uh, people who leave Russia today, the younger people who leave Russia today, tend to be more educated, more professional, working in more, if you want, modern what we call sectors of Russian economy, such as financial services, such as, for example, insurance, such as, uh, for example, um, IT, uh, and so forth, newer technologies and you know, all of that is getting decimated in Russia right now in terms of the workforce and in terms of the creativity and in terms of the entrepreneurship. And that will have a long-term impact because a lot of these people will settle in the West. Yes. Um, they have human capital. They have uh, access to some funding and they have the education to back their human capital as well. Um, so they're not going to be going back even if things normalize in Russia and hell knows what that means even normalizing in Russia. You know, so, um, yes, it is a material. You mentioned 300,000 that were drafted. Um, so far around 70 to 80,000 of them has, have made their way, um, to the, uh, to Ukrainian territory. And, uh, as far as we know, most of them are not at the front yet. Uh, so, uh, in other words, we're not yet seeing that impact in terms of the inflow of new recruits. Um, most of the rest, the, roughly speaking, 200,000, um, are still in training. Uh, and again, we're not going to see them for another probably couple of months. Um, and so it's very difficult to see what the impact they're going to make, if any, on the ground uh, once they are deployed to the front. Let me ask you a final question, Constantine. And we're very grateful to you for your time and for your take on, on what's happening. Is this conflict going to be a long conflict? Are mm -hmm. we looking, uh, given what Russia has in terms of support, determination, taking into account also things it lacks, but as we pointed out in our conversation, there are many things they have. Will there come a point in your view where Zelensky and Ukraine will want to reclaim every bit of their own country as they see it, including Crimea, uh, the Donbass, and everything, which he sometimes talks about, rather than negotiate. At, at that point, the West has levers it can pull. Do you think the, the West will pull them and say, you've got to, you've got to do a deal? Or do you think this will go for a long war? It's a game of probabilities at this stage. Yes. Um, 
And of course, any prediction right now is quite perilous. So yes. anything that I can say right now should be taken with a big, <laughs> you know, if you want a spoon of salt, not I've just a grain the, of I've salt. Got the okay? salt. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I think that in probability terms, we're looking at the longer term conflict rather than the shorter term conflict. The reason for it is that we are seeing disapproval ratings rising to the war in Russia. That certainly is the case. The latest opinion polls are indicating that support for the war effort has shrunk to about 51-52%. But we are not seeing that yet translating into disapproval ratings of Putin himself. Yes. That takes that's an entirely different dynamic in the past and it's hard to predict where it's going to go. Until we see significant disapproval of Putin himself and uh, going into 2024, um, in particular in elections there in Russia, we are going to kind of hold this pattern of, uh, if you want, not frozen conflict, but the conflict which will ebb and flow. Um, you are right in so far as that the Ukraine is showing great determination and great stamina sustaining this effort. And uh, yes, it's helpful to them that they have been gaining some of the ground, quite a bit of the ground, that they are winning in local theater. Uh, if they're not yet the war, they're certainly winning battles. But they're also showing that capacity of the, um, you know, if you want Eastern European people to fight for their own land. Yes. And that capacity is something that the Russians have underestimated. Yes. Um, and this has led to the current scenario where Russia is on a losing footing in the war there, but it still has tremendous resources that it can deploy and it will continue deploying those resources. Now to your part of the question, whether the West will act as a catalyst to compel Ukraine to negotiate the solution. Um, or resolution of the war with Russia. That is a function of how big of the recession we're going to have in the West yes. during 2023. Now, I've been on the prediction of the kind of predicting the Armageddon in terms of the economic performance in the Western economies for the last probably 12 months, and right. it hasn't materialized yet. Again, very complex situation, very, very difficult to judge whether we're going to get a big recession or not. All indicators, all economic theory, all economic past empirical analysis suggest that we're going to have a very sharp, very deep recession, uh, structural recession, but it hasn't materialized yet. So if there is not going to be a recession, or if the recession is very short and very mild, the West can sustain internal emphasis on providing support to Ukraine. And so far we're seeing very little slugging of that, if you want, uh, willingness in the Western, amongst the Western electorates to support Ukraine. Right. But it can change if there is a big, significant recession. Uh, so yes. the answer to your question is really, it depends. It depends on what the domestic conditions in the West are. Um, and, you know, also it depends on what the domestic conditions in Russia are. Because to me, Ukraine is in a stable equilibrium. It is determined to win. It is seen an opportunity sometimes to gain ground, and as a result of that, that determination to win is being reinforced there. Okay, Constantine, as always, a great pleasure to talk to you. We learned a lot. Thank you very much for joining us. That's Constantine Gurdjieff, a very interesting man indeed. Thank you, Constantine. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.